Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study live from the castle of Amen. Just kidding. Uh, we're doing vacation Bible study at the church here, and they have this place decked out like a like a medieval castle. In any case, we are going to be at the end of Matthew 4, so turn there if you will. And uh, just wrapping up Matthew 4, all introduction to the, the um, ministry of the Lord Jesus. Uh, and then we'll get into the Sermon on the Mount 5, 6, and 7, those three chapters of Matthew, considered the greatest sermon ever. We'll talk more about that in a second. Um, so let's dive in back into chapter uh, 4. So I know that you're awake. Say amen. amen. Okay, beautiful. And those of you on Zoom, say amen. I see an amen sign right there. Great. Someone raised their hand. Oh, beautiful. Okay, so we left off right around a verse uh, 20 or so. Well, pick it up in verse 18. Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He sees two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They're casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Now, just before I started this Bible study, Ron and Sharon, who are here, have been to this place, the traditional place next to the Sea of Galilee where this happened, and he gave me pictures and a whole story about it. I appreciate that. What an amazing thing. It also happens to be the place where they think Peter went fishing with some of the disciples after Jesus rose. If you remember where Jesus has a fire in the morning and feeds them breakfast and tells them to cast their net on the other side of the boat. So Jesus is walking and he calls uh, Simon and his brother Andrew, uh, who were fishermen. Verse 19, come follow me. Jesus said, I'll send you out to fish for people. I'll make you fishers of men. This is just review from last week. At once they left their nets and followed him. They also left their father and uh, followed him. We said last week, this is not the first time they met him or heard him speak. But uh, in the Gospel of John chapter 1, he's already called Nathaniel and a few other of the disciples. Verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, James and John. James, John, and Peter end up being the inner three, the main, that, sort of the head apostles, if you will. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, verse 22, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. We said last week also that probably, almost certainly, it may have looked sudden if you were watching this, but probably for weeks, maybe months, the Holy Spirit had been drawing these men where they couldn't forget about Jesus. And so at the right time, Jesus calls them and they answer and they follow him. Same is probably true for you and me. We're at the right time. He called us, and it becomes irresistible. God's call is uh, he's sovereign, and when he calls us, if he has chosen us, we do come to him. Um, then there's a brief summary of the, of the ministry of Jesus before we get into the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 23. Let's read that section, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 23, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So in a synagogue, which is sort of a, a Jewish a church, a place to gather, not a church, place to gather that's separate from the temple where they would only go on certain days of the year, 
in the synagogue, it was common for distinguished guests to be allowed to come up and read scripture and then preach or teach in a seated position. You'll see Jesus sits in the Sermon on the Mount. He does not stand up and teach. That's the way they taught. So he, uh, let's see, he's in Syria here, which is not the country Syria you're thinking of. It's everything um, to the north of Galilee, because this is all centered in Galilee. Uh, yeah, we already talked about that. So his popularity is spreading. He is going throughout Galilee. He's a traveling itinerant preacher, so to speak, teaching, proclaiming the good news. That's what gospel means, good news of the kingdom. It is the best possible news, better than any earthly news where those effects would end. The good news is eternally good news. Healing every disease and sickness among the people. We have said previously that although he is a healer, that is not the primary reason he's here. He's here to die on the cross. Yes, he's here to teach. Yes, he's, he can't resist healing. And the healing is an evidence that he is who he says he is, the son of God, the Messiah, the anointed one, uh, the king of Israel. So he is healing all kinds of diseases. And Matthew just sort of gives you a, a, a an overview in the next verse. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. And NIV has those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. So there are some demonic things going on, some physical ailments, some mental ailments. He's able to heal all of them just like the Pharisees could not do, just like no one else could do. It's an evidence that they ought to listen to him. Let's face it, if you heard someone's in town who's healing every disease, you'd go for that reason. Jesus understands that. He, the hope is that when they hear him preach and he dies and rises, they will remember and believe. He's much more than just a a healer, if you will. But there's the list there, uh, healing every single one of them. Some miracles of healing, by the way, the demonic thing shows his authority and his power as God over demons, that he can command them to leave. His power to heal is often creative. By that I mean, I don't mean he's an artist, that kind of creative. I mean that when he makes an eyeball that can't see, see, it's a recreation of a brand new eyeball or ear or tongue or heart or whatever the case may be. Just like he, God spoke into existence the creation in the same way, he's healing uh, that way as well. So you'll see more healings as we go in Matthew. Matthew just wants to give you a little overview before we get into the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 25, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Matthew wants you to know that this is early in his ministry, but he's already attracting a lot of attention and major crowds are following him. How many of the people following him are true believers? Probably very few, because in John 6, Oddly enough, John 6, verse 66, isn't that weird, is a verse that says that from that point on, many who followed him didn't follow him anymore. 
stopped following him. There's always people that come for the show, for the healing, for the, it's something to do. But then there are those who are genuinely changed by the ministry of Jesus Christ. But Matthew wants you to know uh, that this ministry is already gaining great uh, response and people are becoming saved. All right, we're going to get right now to chapter 5. Um, let's see. So a little brief introduction. As I said, this is called the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew, considered by even non-Christians to be the greatest sermon or speech ever given. A lot of people misunderstand this portion of Scripture. So I'm going to ask the question, and then we'll answer it, of course. What is the Sermon on the Mount? Is this A, the way to get saved? Or B, is it um, something that is for governments to implement as their laws? Um, all kinds of theories about what this is. Uh, in the American Revelation, we had the Declaration of Independence. Karl Marx had the Communist Manifesto. In a sense, this is Jesus's declaration of the kingdom, but I'm going to add a phrase and I'm going to call it the entrance requirements. There's a sense in which this is first for a reason. We'll get into it, the Beatitudes, but then there's a broader thing that he's doing for these three chapters with regard to the Jews and the law of God. The Jews believed God has told us through the commandments and the law of God, the Old Testament, what he wants. And so we Jews in this audience need to just obey that and we'll have eternal life. Jesus is going to shatter that expectation by showing them the heart of the law is not external obedience. It's in here. We'll get to that. Um, let's see. There's a couple of bottom lines here. I'm just going to throw two at you. In verse 5, let me turn there. Look at verse 20, I think it is. Hold on. Matthew 5, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses or exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that's the religious leaders of Judaism, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That would blow the Jews' minds. Because if you asked in the crowd, who are the holiest dudes in Judaism? They'd say, it's the Pharisees, those guys in those robes. And man, they study the scriptures. They are so careful to obey the law. They're going to be first in heaven. And Jesus blows that out of the water and says, your righteousness, your rightness with God has to be way more than theirs or you'll never make it. Which implies what? Those guys that you think are so holy ain't so holy. They're not going to even make it, we find out. The other one that is the mind blower, I know I'm skipping ahead here, is uh, Matthew 5, go to verse 48. Matthew 5, 48. Do the best you can. Is that what it says? Be as good as you can be. God grades on a curve. Is that what it says? Be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
So it would be one thing if he just said be perfect because there would be people, def- well, what does he mean by perfect? But he qualifies it with the, with the phrase, you know, perfect. The way God is, perfect. Are you already getting a sense that they're going to feel a little sense of hopelessness? Like we're not going to get there by obeying the law. That I believe, I'm already t- giving it away, is what I think the whole purpose of this sermon is to blow out of the water all their preconceived notions about, I'm pretty good. When you were in school, sometimes they would hard, they'd give a hard test and they'd say you have to have 65 or above or 75 or above out of 100 to pass, right? That's grading on a curve. Jesus just said 100% or you fail. Okay, go back to the beginning of Matthew 5. I just wanted to give you this little introduction. In certain portions of the Bible, I've said this again and again, I equate it to when my parents took my brother and I on vacation. We would get in the Chevy station wagon, 1958, and we would go somewhere. We're going on vacation. Where are we going? It's about a six-hour drive. Okay, so my brother and I are in the back seat, and and things are whizzing by, right? But certain places, this is Plymouth Rock, kids, We're getting out of the car and you stop and get out of the car and you're maybe there for an hour. There's other places like the Smithsonian or the White House. If you're going to get a tour, you really get out of the car and investigate, right? The Sermon on the Mount is not things whizzing by in the car. This is pull over, get your stuff out of the car. We're going to be here a while. So we're going to go slowly. I want to warn you, if you think we're going to finish chapter five, six, and seven tonight, you're sadly mistaken. Uh, we got to really get out of the car. One last analogy. I told you not last week, we're going to talk about Kirby vacuums tonight. How many of you remember the Kirby vacuum company? I don't even know if they're still in business, but are they? There are vacuum cleaners. Most vacuum cleaners you buy today are plastic and they're kind of disposable, right? It breaks. It's not worth it to fix it. We'll just go get another one. Kirby vacuums were expensive. It was made of metal, chrome, shiny. It was amazing. One day at our house in La Selva Beach near Santa Cruz, a Kirby vacuum salesman came to the door. And we, my wife and I said, we're not really interested. Thanks for coming by. And he said, will you give me two minutes to prove to you that you need this vacuum? So I thought, two minutes okay, go ahead. So he comes into the living room, which is a room we we have little kids, so we never use the living room. That was the cleanest room in the house. And he takes a little bag out with ashes and dirt and dumps it to our shock on on the carpet in the living room, which is tan, light tan carpet. And my wife's looking at me like, is this guy nuts? Why did we do this? He said, now go get your vacuum. And I did. He said, vacuum it all up. And I did three or four times. Is it all gone? It's all gone. He pulls out his Kirby vacuum, shows us that the bag is totally clean. It's never been used before. Clean. I'm going to vacuum that. And I'm going to show you that your vacuum is not doing what you think it's doing. All that dust is still there. Watch this. He vacuums it like just a few times. Opens the bag. I'm watching my watch. Spend two minutes. He opens the bag and there's all kinds of dirt and ashes in there. 
what you thought he's saying to us that was adequate is far from it. You need this vacuum for your kids, their allergies, to keep your house truly clean. After some negotiation, much to my chagrin, we bought a Kirby vacuum. Okay, you say, what does that have to do with anything? Jesus is showing them what you think is sufficient to get you to heaven. Do your best to obey the law. Make the little sacrifices, the ceremonial washings. Eat this, the right food, the kosher food. You're all good. He's going to show them you need a different mode of salvation. You need a different vacuum cleaner. Okay. And no, I'm not selling vacuum cleaners. If you're going to read some of this and you're going to say, you probably already did, I, I can't do this. Be perfect, says Jesus. Unless your righteousness exceeds those holy dudes you thought were so holy, you'll, you'll never make it. If that's what you're thinking, I can't do this, Jesus says, mission accomplished. You need a savior. That's the point behind all the moral law of five, six, and seven. It's not the only point I'll show you, but it's the major point. It's a high ethical standard that still applies to you and I, I'll show you, even though you're already saved. Okay, let's dive in, shall we? Verse one, chapter five, when Jesus, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. I want to just take that section, then we'll get into the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So he sees the crowds. At first glance, it sounds like he sees the crowds and he splits to a mountain. Let's get away from these crowds. He's going up on a hillside. It's not really a mountain, but he's going up on a, on a, a, a hillside where there's a lot of level land where he can preach and be heard in a seated position, maybe up on a boulder or something. That's why he goes up there. Also, the mountainside should, for Bible students, make you recall other mountains. Like Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to get the law of God, right? He's sort of saying, this is the new, improved, not vacuum, Moses. We're going to talk about the law, and we're going to go 10 steps further. That's what he's doing. So he goes up on a mountainside and he sits down. As I said earlier, rabbis did not teach standing up. They sat down. That was the position of teaching. And people were at their feet listening. Uh, and verse 2 in NIV says, and he began to teach them. Does anybody have, he opened his mouth in your translation? Okay, a lot of you. Okay, isn't that interesting? He opened his mouth and began to teach them. Kind of seems like, why even bother with the, he's not a ventriloquist. Why bother saying he opened his mouth? Of several commentaries, I love this, said that he, Jesus taught everywhere he went, sometimes without even opening his mouth, right? Just by healing, just by the way he reacted with people, interacted with people, with children, with people that were hurting, his empathy and what have you. So he teaches whether he opens his mouth or not. Okay, now we get into the, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount are the Beatitudes. Let's read them and then we'll talk about it. He said, verse 3, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, verse 4, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children or sons of God. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, verse 11, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Verse uh, 12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the Beatitudes. Let's dive in, shall we? Okay, go back to verse three, uh, if you will. So what we have here is true righteousness versus external righteousness. Um, let's see. Yeah, we talked about that. Um, the word blessed is beatus. That's in Latin. That's why it's beatitudes. Uh, in Greek, it's a different word. Makarios, blessed or blessed. The word has the idea of the best English word, sounds a little silly, is happy. Greatly blessed, um, blissful. By the way, the reason happy isn't a great word is happiness in English comes from happenstance, which means just the stuff that happens to you. If you know anything about human life, you know that what happens to you on a day-to-day -day basis might make you happy on Monday and sad on Tuesday and really bummed out on Wednesday and then a little happier Thursday, And right? It's a roller coaster. So that's not what's going on here. He's saying permanently blissful and joyful are those who fill in the blank. But the first one is the weirdest one of all, perhaps, and which is, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's a few different words for poor in Greek. This is the poorest of the poor. This is the destitute, bankrupt, begging, I got nothing poor. Got the picture? So he's saying, he's not saying blessed are the poor, meaning financially. He's saying blessed are the poor in spirit. May I paraphrase, blessed blissful and happy and greatly favored by God are the spiritually, listen, bankrupt. What did you say? Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Remember that I said, this is a, a moral, a high moral ground, but it is the entrance requirements for the kingdom. See the doors behind me? To get into the kingdom of heaven, this is entrance requirement number one. How can that be? You would think it would say, blessed are the rich in spirit, right? What is going on here? Okay. The last word in the Old Testament in Malachi is the word, anybody know? 
curse. Michelle got it. This is Jesus' first words officially in his ministry, and the first word is blessed, not cursed, blessed. But in order to be blessed in the new covenant in Christianity with Jesus, the first requirement is you got to know that you in your unsaved state are spiritually not lacking a few things, not middle class, certainly not rich. The Pharisees thought we are the rich spiritual ones. You have to know that spiritually you are bankrupt. You are so in need, you need to beg, spiritually speaking. Is this true for rich people? It's true for everyone. Okay, why is that? The answer is because we're sinners. So spiritually speaking, speaking, we are separated from God because of our sin. As a result, there's nothing we can do to make up for our sin except pay for them in hell forever. We have nothing to offer God. What does Isaiah say? All our righteousness is as filthy rags. So who's going to come to Jesus for salvation? Answer, the ones who know how needy they are. They're giving away free bread at the corner of First and Main Street. Who's going to go? The ones that are in need, who know they're in need. The weird thing is, a majority of humanity on planet Earth is spiritually, everybody, spiritually bankrupt, and most people don't know it. I'm spiritually okay. My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I'll take my chances with God when I die. That's wrong. Absolutely wrong. God does not grade on good deeds versus bad deeds. God grades on chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect. There's two ways to get into heaven. Receive Jesus as your Savior or live a perfectly sinful life, sinless life. And since you can't do that, that leaves only one option. You need a Savior. So the first requirement to come to Christ is know how spiritually poor you are. Recognize the way God sees you is spiritually a total beggar. That is a shocking thing to Jews who would have said, yeah, you know who's spiritually poor, bankrupt? The pagans, the unsaved, the Gentiles, not us. He's telling them you are spiritually bankrupt. You're in extreme poverty. If there's a stairway or a ladder to heaven, where's the first step? Right next to the ground. I've often said that if you could picture coming to Jesus for salvation as entering uh, a cave or a building, go through that building to meet Jesus and receive him for salvation. I always say, in my mind, I never picture big golden doors that open and the trumpets blow. I think it's a low door about this high. You say, I would have to get on my hands and knees and look ridiculous to get, yeah, exactly. I might even get dirty down there, exactly. That's the humble way you and I come to Jesus. I'm spiritually broke. I can't save myself. I can't stop sinning. I have no answer to the accusations against me. I am a sinner. I deserve hell. I'm spiritually broke. I'm out of options. 
please help me. Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he got free bread. There's no ego in a person that admits he's spiritually poor, bankrupt. So the Pharisees, the Jews were taught, you just obey all these rules. They go through the motions and sacrifice a lamb. And they didn't understand that the sacrifice of a lamb for your family was not a payment for sin. It was a, and it says this in the Old Testament, covering, temporary. How do you know that? Because a year from now on Passover, you're going to do it all again. You know why? Because you sinned again. You're spiritually bankrupt, and you've got a bullet wound that you're covering up with a Band-Aid. You're not dealing with the problem, if you will. Um, so the ones who are blessed when it comes to Jesus are the ones who know, I'm spiritually poor. I need a savior. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Translation, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of salvation, eternal life. Because the Pharisees would never come to Jesus for salvation because they'd have to admit they're poor in spirit and they could never come through that low doorway. So um, do we want to go there now? Hmm. Yeah, let's go to uh, Luke 18 real quickly. Two books to the right from Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 18. I'm just going to show you somebody who's poor in spirit. And I'll show you in the same story, somebody who thinks they're a millionaire spiritually. And you'll see who's right and who's wrong. Uh, math, uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. That's a Jewish religious leader. And the other one, a tax collector. That would be like the worst type of sinner. We've talked about how tax collectors were Jews who were traitors to the Jews, collecting taxes for the Romans. They were rip-off artists. They were bad. So they both go to the temple. The Pharisee, verse 11, stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. Blah, blah, blah. He's bragging to God. He thinks he's a spiritual millionaire. But the tax collector, verse 13, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. Look at the humility. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm out of options. I'm what? Poor in spirit. You see the difference? Verse 14, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Go back to Matthew. I wanted you to see that. Good example. The rich, the guy that thinks he's spiritually rich, the guy that knows he's spiritually poor. You got to know you have a need like Joe and Sherry in La Selva Beach before you buy a vacuum cleaner. You got to know you have a spiritual need before you come to Jesus. People were coming to him for the healing, not even thinking about I'm spiritually poor. Nobody wants to admit spiritually they're in big trouble. But that's the condition of unsaved men ever since the fall of man. 
Um, so it's a humble, correct estimate of one's self. No self-praise. Um, most don't know that they're poor. Yeah, we already talked about that. This is the doctrine in theological circles that, circles that we call the depravity of man. That man in his default state, you ever heard this? People are basically good. Not biblically. Here it is, poor in spirit. What people mean when they say that is most people are not mass murderers or rapists or thieves. But nobody is basically good except Jesus and God right? Tim Keller about this passage says, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, not about you. So we have nothing to offer God. No one gets to heaven who thinks they deserve to be there. Isn't that ironic? The ones that get to heaven realize, what am I doing here? It's all Jesus. It's all grace we'll see the law the old testament law galatians romans both say the whole purpose was to show you your sin to show you the need for a savior they took that as no we're just going to keep the law we're going to do our best nobody keeps the whole law later he's going to take aspects of the law to the extreme god sees and show them you don't keep the law He's going to say, for example, in this sermon, you've heard it said, you should not, thou shalt not murder. Most people in that audience would go, I'm good on that one. Have you murdered anybody? Not today. No, me either. And then he's going to say, but I tell you that if you call somebody a fool or hate your brother, you're just as guilty as if you murdered him. Oh, that seems so strict. Amen. God is not pretty good. He's perfect. You want to get into heaven, you got to be perfect. You got to be cleansed with a new heart, born again. Sins forgiven. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery. I'm good on that. You good on that? Yeah, I'm good on that. One. But I say to you that if you even look at another person with lust, even on TV and the internet, yes, you've already done the act because it starts here. It doesn't start with the hands and the body. It starts here, here. Okay. Um, how does God get us to this point? Number one, his word. You read the word, you start to see yourself and you realize you're not as holy as you thought you were. Number two, the Holy Spirit. When a person comes to Christ, the Holy Spirit's been convicting them of their sin and their need for a savior. And then there's other Christians that also speak to us about all that. Uh, Sometimes people don't get to this point of I'm poor in spirit till they're in the gutter, face down. Addiction, you know, a totally broken life. God's terms, that's the best place to be. If that's what it takes to make you look up, totally worth it. When you come to the end of yourself, that's when you're ready for the beginning of God in Jesus Christ. So it's a prerequisite. What about Christians? We have received Jesus, Joe. Are we still poor in spirit? In a sense, yes. We are totally reliant on him. Just because I'm a believer now doesn't mean I'm sinless. I'm awesome. It means I have to totally fight the flesh and rely on him day by day, moment by moment. Um, we already talked about that. 
So the entrance is very low, the doorway. Um, the kingdom of God belongs to those who know. I want you to notice in these scriptures, we're going to move on now, that there's a progression. Jesus is a masterful sermon giver as God. Each one of these things builds on the one previous. Watch. Number one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Don't pluck this verse out of context. If you pluck it out of context, you could go around to people that are bummed out at funerals and who just lost their job and or had their legs amputated and say, hey, don't worry, blessed are those who mourn. That's not what it says. In context, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the ones who know spiritually they need a savior. And to that end, building on that, and blessed are those who know their poor in spirit, and it bums them out greatly, Joe's translation. They mourn over what? The fact that they're spiritually bankrupt. If you knew how spiritually bankrupt you were, you would mourn. Human nature is such, I don't even want to think about that, right? I'm just going to get drunk so I don't think about how spiritually poor I am. The one that's blessed is the one who's poor spiritually and mourns about it. If you're that bummed out about your poverty spiritually and you're mourning, what does it say in verse 4? They will be comforted. Because that's fertile ground for Jesus to move in with the answer that he only he can give. The ones who mourn. It's a, the first step of repentance is mourning over your sin. Not mourning that you got caught, but mourning over the sin itself and the bankruptcy. Um, we already talked. The Messiah in Isaiah 40, Isaiah 66, twice, is associated with, uh, he's a man of comfort that he will comfort us. But he can't comfort you if you don't know you need a savior, that you're bankrupt and you don't mourn over your sin. Look at verse five. Oh, by the way, one last thing. I mentioned earlier the mourning thing. And let's face it, there's a lot of reasons people mourn and are sad. But one of the biggest is when someone dies that you love, right? Isn't it interesting that for Christians, uh, if any of you died or any of you on Zoom that I know passed away, or God forbid one of my family members or closest friends, some of you are my closest friends, if one of them died, I would greatly mourn. But if they're believers, it's a weird thing, isn't it? It's bittersweet. You mourn, you miss the person, oh, and yet you rejoice there in heaven. Have you been to a funeral for a Christian where it's a celebration of life for real? Because we know where they are. They're in glory. Um, I spoke for 10 or 12 minutes at the men's breakfast. And I'll just try to make this as brief as I can. And what I talked about was a friend of mine that was in my band in the 1980s, Roger Cloud. Um, I talked to him uh, in late June on the phone, lived in Alabama. He was in my band in the 80s, great keyboard player, guitar player, singer, songwriter. And over the years, we'd remained friends, even though he was in my band 40 years ago. We used to constantly talk about Jesus, Bible, God. He had all these questions we would debate, and he never believed. 
And July 5th, my birthday, his wife emailed me and said he passed away just like that, suddenly. Very unexpected. They had a memorial for him about a week ago. Um, and I watched online. 90 minutes. No mention, God, heaven, Bible, no scripture, no hope. He was a great guy. He did this. He did that. He wrote this song. He went here. He traveled here. He was a lawyer. He was one of the smartest people I've ever met. How smart was he? It, and the talk I gave was about the urgency for witnessing to people while you can, because you never know. Your own life, their life, the end of the world, who knows? Witness for Christ while you can. Mourning. I would imagine his family is mourning. If he was a believer, I'd be high-fiving people. He's there. It's a temporary separation. I don't, I don't think I'll ever see Roger Cloud again. In any case, now that I've bummed you out, let's move on, shall we? Blessed are the mourn, uh, those who mourn, they will be comforted. Mourning over their sin, their spiritual condition. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Good. Not very good at math. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Notice how these build. We go from the person that knows they're poor in spirit, like the guy we read about in Luke 18, beats his chest. I don't even want to look up to heaven, have mercy on me. He's mourning over his sin. He knows he's spiritually poor. Is he conceited? No, he's meek. Now, the word meek can mean, um, at, at a glance in our culture, somebody that's meek is sounds like he's wimpy, right? Like he's a doormat. The word meek in Greek means strength under control. In context, it's the control of God, the control of the Holy Spirit. Meekness is absolute uh, humility, not gutless, spineless doormat people, but harnessed power. A wild stallion is good for nothing on a farm. Did you know that? Until that horse is broken, and is strength under control with a bit and with reins and a saddle. Until then, it's just pretty to wow. Look at him walk. Look at him run around. We can't even catch him. We are wild. So there's a meekness, an unpretentiousness about these people who are poor in spirit. They're patient when they're injured or insulted. They're the opposite of being out of control. In Matthew 129, Jesus is meek and humble. No one endured more wrong than the Lord Jesus. Beaten, whipped, um, and crucified, and hadn't done any sin, anything wrong. So meekness, the first two are inward, poor in spirit. I'm looking in at myself, I'm realizing I'm, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm mourning over that condition. But this one is outward. They're meek toward others. It's, another translation is the word gentle here. Um, when you know your poor in spirit, you're mourning over your sin, you're much more meek, you're willing to submit and work under God's control. Um, what about the meek? 
they will inherit the earth. Wow. It's the ultimate inheritance, right? You can inherit a, a castle like what's behind me here. You can inherit a car or a house or $100 million. And we inherit the earth. It's a way of saying they inherit everything. Well, who's got everything? Your Lord, your Savior. When you receive Jesus Christ, you become a son of God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Is that all he owns? No, it's a way of the Old Testament saying he owns it all, folks. He even owns the land your house is on, right? Your car. He owns everything. It's all on loan. So we inherit the earth. When someone dies, usually their family does the inheriting. We're children of God. Did God die? No, but he's letting us inherit everything that is his uh, to share with him. That's the new heavens and the new earth. We inherit the universe, if you want to be specific. We're an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ, Romans 8 says. So this is talking about the spiritual man. Pause for a second and see how we're out of the car now in looking at the Grand Canyon or wherever we are. Pause and look back at starting verse 3 again. Would the world agree with this? No, it'd be just the opposite. Blessed are those who are spiritually rich and astute and really spiritual. I know some people that think they're so spiritual and they're wrong. The only way to be spiritual is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to be born again. Would the world say blessed are those who mourn? No, they'd say blessed are those who are happy and who party. Always happy. Would the world say the blessed are those who are meek? No, they'd say blessed are the strong and the powerful and the assertive. It's just the opposite. Tim Keller calls it the upside down kingdom that you have to get down that low to be exalted to God in heaven. Verse six, uh, the meek inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The picture of somebody is of somebody, uh, the only time I can think of is like Thanksgiving. You ever eat so much, you just like push away from the table and go, oh my gosh. I can't even stand up. I'm so full. He's saying if you hunger and thirst, not for food, not for drink, but for righteousness, rightness with God, holiness, obedience, purity, we're about to see. If you hunger and thirst for that and make it your prime directive, God will give it. He's, his table is so full of food, you can stuff yourself and still take in more. It's beautiful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is not, not, listen, the default position for humanity. The default position for humanity is we hunger and thirst for money, power, fame, good looks, beauty, stuff, right? We hunger and thirst for college degrees and PhDs after our name and all the permanent, the temporary, stupid stuff. And all of those things are okay. He's saying, make your priority to hunger and thirst for righteousness, rightness, right standing with God. Because when you're that hungry, Jesus will provide it. This is not, listen, works salvation. 
This is a righteousness, Romans calls it a foreign righteousness. It's not mine. Look how righteous I am. It's look how righteous he is on that cross dying for me. He offers me that righteousness that I can wear like a white robe in the book of Revelation, and I've given him all my guilt, all my sin, all my shame. The ultimate great deal, the ultimate exchange. Let's take our two-minute break and stretch, and don't forget to say hello to someone you don't know. Those of you on Zoom, don't go away. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. All right, we're back in chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. And unfortunately, I'm your teacher, and so you're not getting everything out of it you could, but it's better than nothing, right? Um, so we left off, we've seen those who are poor in spirit are blessed, those who mourn because of their sin, those who are meek as a result of their sin. There's no conceitedness in being poor in spirit. Those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. In other words, the idea is above everything else, I want to be right with God. I'm hungering for it. I'm thirsting for it. May I say that is a God-given hunger. Just as the hunger you have and for Food and the thirst you have for liquid is God-given. You say, why is that? Because God built it into human bodies to keep us alive. If someone is never hungry, you know, you ask about somebody, how is he? Oh, he's in the hospital. How's he doing? Listen to this. He's not eating. What do you usually think? Uh-oh. He's on the way out, right? He's lost that desire for nourishment that keeps you alive. Listen, spiritually, that desire transfers not food physically, but the nourishment of righteousness uh, that you hunger and thirst for. In the Bible, the Bible calls itself milk, meat, honey, several terms for things that nourish uh, our bodies. Okay, a longing. It's a hunger, listen, if you've been a Christian a long time, anybody been a Christian here 50 years? Raise your hand. A few of you. Have you lost the hunger? No, of course not. Just like you still eat. you still. If you had lost the hunger, you wouldn't be here on Tuesday night unless you're here for the free air conditioning. Uh, no, it's a hunger we have our whole lives. Thank God for that hunger. We want, hunger. We want more nourishment from God, don't we? Um, so... I'm turning my page in notes here. So this is the person that is never quite satisfied. His highest priority is that personal fidelity to his God. Um, the Holy Spirit gives that hunger. Uh, we talked about what, what the world hungers for already. Um, this is the person that wants to please God above everything else. Listen, here's the weird thing. Why is he hungering and thirsting for righteousness? A Christian. Some of you have been Christians 50 years or more, right? Why are you still hungering and thirsting for righteousness? To get salvation? No. You already have it. Well, then why are you even here? You could just coast because I want to know more so that I can please the one I love more because he loved me more than anybody ever has. That's why we're here. We owe him everything. Okay. We beat that dead hearse, that horse or dead hearse, whatever. 
Freudian. It's all this, you know, this set behind me has me totally like messed, messed up. I'm in a castle somewhere. Okay. Notice the succession. They're poor. They're mourning over their sin. They're meek. They're hungry and thirsting for righteousness. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Why is that? Because they've been shown mercy. That's why they're merciful. So we need to define mercy. Is it the same as grace? You hear these things, grace and mercy, grace and peace. What's the difference between grace and mercy? Here it is. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. Those of you on Zoom, are you awake? Okay. Yes, amen. I see the sign. I love, oh, two signs. Wonderful. One in Vanuatu. Grace. Good stuff given to you that you don't deserve and you can't earn and the person that gave it didn't owe it to you. God's riches, G-R-A-C-E, at Christ's expense. Grace is the opposite of wages. If I hire Jeff to paint my garage for $2,000 and we make a deal and he comes and paints my garage and I look at the job and it's great and I give him $2,000, that's not grace. He earned it. I owe it. On the other hand, forget the garage. I just hear that Jeff is hurting financially and needs help, and I just give him $2,000. Is that wages? No. Did he earn it? No. Can he deserve it? No. Do I owe it to him? No. It's grace. Good stuff that's given just freely. That's how you and I get saved. That's how we get the Holy Spirit. That's how we get spiritual gifts we can use. It's all undeserved grace. You say, you're off subject, Joe. What's mercy? Mercy is the cousin of grace, but in a way, it's the opposite. Mercy is bad stuff you do deserve, punishment that is withheld in love. Now, same person, Jeff Harkenreiter, but I'm the judge in a courtroom. You got it? Got the picture? And he drove his car through somebody's house purposely because he was so angry, caused a bunch of damage. He's guilty, right? What does he deserve? Punishment. Bad example, but, but anyway, if I'm merciful to him, I will reduce or eliminate his punishment. Okay, mercy is bad stuff, punishment that you do deserve that God withholds in love. But the Jeff analogy in court is a bad one, and here's why. Because let's make it worse. Well, we won't make it Jeff. We'll make it Harold, an imaginary person over here. Harold raped a woman and committed murder, and he deserves the death penalty. You got it? And the judge is Jesus Christ. Je Harold, the murderer rapist, sorry, Jeff. Harold, the murderer rapist, comes to faith in the Lord Jesus. Can that happen? Absolutely. Whosoever. Okay, now what? Now the judge says, you're guilty. You deserve the death penalty. But because you're my child and you're forgiven, 
the judge takes off his judge's robe, goes out to Golgotha, where they beat him up and put him on a cross, and the judge takes the defendant's punishment for him. Talk about mercy. That's the ultimate mercy. The Christian who's poor in spirit, who is mourning over their sin, who's meek, who's hungry and thirsting for righteousness, who's come to Jesus and shown great mercy, of course they're going to be merciful to others. How would it be if I've been forgiven all that sin and, oh God, everything, thank you for your mercy, and then Jeff over here, another Jeff, runs over my foot with his car and I'm going to sue you and take you for all your worth. That's not merciful. Well, he did run over your car. I mean, he did run over your foot. I know, but I've been shown so much mercy vertically. I got to show it horizontally. I've been shown so much grace, stuff I don't deserve vertically. I got to show it horizontally and give people that same kind of love and kindness. I'm reading notes here. In this castle, those of you that are tuning in late, we're in a castle in Sweden. Just kidding. Unbelievable. I'll regret saying that probably. Um, mercy is the pardon of injuries and wrongs. That's the technical definition. Um, we already talked about all of that. David in the Old Testament was merciful to King Saul. Could have killed him. Merciful. Because God had shown him mercy. When you give mercy, you get mercy. But usually, first you get mercy, then you give it. That's what happens in the Christian life. Um, verse uh, 7 says, the merciful are going to be shown mercy. The proof that you and I are saved is we show grace outwardly. That's not, I'm not showing grace outwardly or mercy to get salvation. I already have it It's in response or gratitude for what I've been given. Verse 8. This is a tough one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. How many of you have a totally pure heart? Can I see your hands? Oh, don't lie. Nobody has a pure heart. Okay, so then this is another one of those verses. Blessed are the pure in heart is like be perfect. Remember verse 48? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, you'll never make it. Blessed, blessed are the pure in heart. You ought to be saying, I can't do this. Jesus says, exactly. Now your heart is open to hear how you could possibly end up being pure in heart and being blessed. It turns out God has to do it. You can't say, I'm going home and purifying my heart. What does pure mean? If I say, this is pure gold, do you see it? It's pure gold, but it's 20% um, dog droppings, but it's pure gold. Wait, wait, wait. Pure means one thing, right? Nothing else. Pure gold means it's gold and nothing else. Not mixed, not a divided, listen, allegiance. What do you mean divided allegiance? Some people want to be totally focused on God, but 
I also have one foot in the world and I'm going to try to straddle the fence and do both. That's a divided allegiance. You will never, ever make it. James 4 says, purify your, you, your hearts. Listen, you double-minded. What's a double-minded person? I just described him. Oh, I'm totally into the God thing. I love God. I love Jesus. I want to obey him, but I've still got my foot in the world and I still like to do some other stuff. And, but Sundays I put on my holy smile <laughs> and say stuff like, oh, God bless you. Praise God. And then live the rest of the week like a hellion. Divided allegiance. James, purify your hearts, you double-minded. A couple verses before that, he spells it out. James 4.4. 4. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. You become an enemy of, the, of God if you're trying to be a friend of the world and the worldly system and all that they believe. No divided allegiance. Purity means not diluted, not polluted. So now go back to the verse. Blessed are the pure, not diluted, not polluted in heart. Now we have to define the word heart. You say, I know what a heart is. It's the organ that pumps the blood. And in the Western world, we understand what the heart is. I love you with all my heart. The heart is the seat of the emotion, not biblically. In the Bible, you look up all the verses about heart there's emotion involved, but you know what? It usually is the same thing we would say? Mind. Because that's where everything starts. I'll show you in a minute. Well, then what's the seat of emotions in Hebrew? And it's the gut. It's the bowels. Imagine saying to a woman, I, you know, I love you with all my bowels. <laughs> my bowels are so in love with you. It, what did you say? It's weird in our culture, right? You love somebody with your heart, not Hebrew scriptures. It's the mind. The heart is the center of your will and your motives and what you think and what makes you who you are, the, the inner part of you. Notice this is not the external religion of the Pharisees. It's internal. Okay, so the pure in heart. Um, Go home and tell your wife or husband tonight, I love you with all my bowels. She'll appreciate that, I'm sure. Uh, it should be on Valentine's cards, I think. Um, listen to Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, not part, not divided. Um, Ver, uh, Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for the, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See the Lord means see him. Not an appointment where you get to be 20 minutes with him. It means see the Lord permanently. What are believers called? Children of God. Of course the kids can see dad, right? Our father in heaven. But it takes a pure heart, not outward purity. So if you're mostly pure, but you have some things in your heart, things that you desire that are sinful, you don't have a pure heart. Again, the audience, if they're listening and thinking, ought to think, I can't do this. How can I purify my heart? Okay, and the answer is God has to do it. And by the way, you can't fool God. First Samuel 16, man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. Look at me. Can you see my heart? And I don't mean the organ in my chest. Can you see my thoughts and my motives? No. You know who can? God. 
sees right through my actions and knows, I know why you did that, Joe. It wasn't a good motive. So Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it, out of your heart, listen, are all the issues of life. It all starts here, inside, here. That's why Jesus is going to say in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, if you hate somebody or you call them a fool, it's the same thing. You say, well, no, murder is way worse than calling somebody. Listen, the seed of murder is hatred. Calling somebody a fool, I'm better than you. I can take your life, right? That's where it starts. It never starts with a knife or a gun or a bomb or a club. It starts here. And God wants to root it out at the seed level, the root level, not the trees and the fruit of the sin, if you will. Okay, I'm reading so many notes on this. We already talked about that. That's pretty good. Um, um, Proverbs 23, 7, for as a man, listen to this, as a man thinks in his, what's he going to say? Mind? No, listen. Proverbs 23, 7, as a, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. See what I mean? Jewish thought, you think with your heart. They weren't stupid. They know you have a brain, but the heart is the center of your will, your emotions, your motives, who you are, what makes you tick, what you desire, what you thirst and hunger for. What was in that verse a couple of verses ago? Righteousness. But then in Jeremiah 17, just when you think, you know, man is basically good. Jeremiah 9, 17, 9 to 10. The heart of man is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? Because of Adam and Eve, no matter whether you're Jeffrey Dahmer or some serial murderer or just an average unsaved person, we tend towards selfishness, towards sin, away from God, naturally. That's why we're poor in spirit, why we need a Savior. The Pharisees were the worst legalists. Keep your finger here and go to Matthew chapter 15. You say, boy, you're really skipping around. That's right, it's keeping you awake. Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, where does sin come from? The devil made me do it. Wrong. Matthew 15, 18, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. And then he goes on about unwashed hands. The point is, do you see how in a Hebrew way of thinking, the heart is, that's where the thoughts come from. That's the motivation for sin. Okay, so there's the continued um, order of things. The ones that are poor in spirit mourn over their sin. They know it. They're meek as a result. They're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They'll do anything to get it. And they receive it from Jesus and they get mercy from him in verse 7. And they're merciful. And blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God, the ultimate. 
Old Testament says no man shall see God and live. You know why? Sinful condition. It would kill you to see God. Be like looking at the sun. Can't do it. But if we've been purified by Jesus Christ, we can see him face to face. And you will one day. Okay, now we got to talk about how you get this pure heart. Job, toward the end of the book of Job, verse uh, chapter 42, he speaks, God speaks, and then Job speaks to God and says, I had heard of you, but now my eye sees you. Listen, therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. He realizes he's poor in spirit. Okay, so you can't do this on your own. We've covered that. So how do you get it? Um, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again, spiritually forgiven because of your faith. Now, go to Psalm 24. That's way in the Old Testament. About the middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms. Psalm 24, trying to keep you awake here. The air conditioning is very soothing. Most of you are asleep. Psalm 24. Verse 3. What a question. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? How, who can go up there? Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, there it is again, who does not lift up his soul to an idol nor swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord. Okay, so there's the pure heart again, the clean hands. Matthew 19, 26 says in a different context, but it fits here as well. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In Isaiah 59, it says a redeemer will come to Zion, a redeemer, someone who's going to redeem the people that want to ascend to the hill of the Lord, who want a pure heart and can't do it on their own. Ezekiel uh, 36.25, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. You see, God has to do it. God has to wash your heart. I'll clean you. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Listen to this. I will give you, what's the context? A pure heart, remember? Listen, this is Old Testament, Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. That's God in the Old Testament predicting to the Jews the days coming when the Messiah shows up. Because he's going to die for sin and you're finally cleaned up inside, then I can put a new spirit inside of you, a new heart inside of you. That's the only way to get it. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's new covenant, listen, regeneration, meaning rebirth, born again. It's imputed righteousness. Fancy word, it means it's not my own. It's given. If you say, I really like that suit you're wearing, and I say, oh, it's not mine. Les is letting me wear his suit. I, Joe, you've done such good things, and not my righteousness you're seeing. It all comes from him. Same thing. Imputed. It's given. Uh, we already talked about that. Keep in mind, 
although these are things a human being can't do apart from God, for this is for the unbeliever. What about for the believer? All the stuff is still true. It's his absolute, extremely high standard. Okay, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. Here's what God doesn't say, which my parents on occasion did say. Well, just do the best you can. What if God said that in the word? What if there's no pure heart, be perfect, sin not, sin go and sin no more. Remember he, Jesus tells the woman? What if there wasn't that and instead it was the Lord spoke and said, do thou the best you can. Boys will be boys. I know you're going to sin, you knucklehead. Just do the best you can. Oh, he grades on a curve. We'd sin our little tails off, wouldn't we? Sorry, doing the best I can. That's why there's an absolute standard because he's absolutely holy and pure. He's got to give you something to aim at. You, are you saying I can live a perfect sinless life? No, but I'm saying it's very wise to tell people you got to aim for the bullseye because there's an old saying. Have you ever heard this? Those who aim at nothing always hit it, right? Aim at nothing. If, if you're that loose with your life, you're going to aim at nothing. You're going to hit nothing. He wants you to do the best you can, but in the power of the Spirit, you now can live a holy life. His glory, to the extent, listen, that you and I submit to that same Holy Spirit. Well, what happens when I sin? That's when you resisted the Holy Spirit and went your own way. But to the extent you obey the Holy Spirit, you can live a holy life. Nobody ever does it perfectly. Oh, so what does that mean? I've still got sin on my soul. No, sin, past, present, well, for you, past, present, future are all forgiven in the Lord Jesus on that cross. The sins you committed before you came to Jesus are forgiven. The sins you're committing today are forgiven. It's not a license to sin. We ought to thirst for righteousness to where we sin less and less. But even the sins future that you're going to sin next Thursday are forgiven in Jesus Christ. We still mourn the sin. We still ask for forgiveness, recognize its mercy, and what have you. Blessed are the pure in heart. They're going to see God. Don't get a big head when you get to heaven. I've got a pure heart. The only reason you have a pure heart is he purified it by dying on the cross in your place and giving you his Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful thing. Um, yeah, we talked about that. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called God's kids, children of God. There's so much here. I'm trying to get through it, but, and we're almost out of time. Peacemakers. What's a peacemaker? A technical definition. A peacemaker is someone, let's make it me, who uses his ability and influence to reconcile contending parties. You understand? Okay. But there's four ways we're supposed to be peacemakers. And then we'll tell, talk about where the peace comes from. 
How can we be peacemakers? It, it's someone that restores unity like a bridge. Okay, we're supposed to be four different bridges. Listen, are you still awake? Say amen. Okay. Zoom, you awake, you folks? Okay. Bridge number one, be a peacemaker between two or more other people who are in conflict. Chris and Jeff aren't getting along. If I can intervene and help them work that out, I'm a peacemaker. According to this verse, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called children of God. Why will they be called, before you get to the other bridges, Joe, why will they be called children of God? Because children bear a resemblance to their parent. God is the ultimate peacemaker. Not between governments, not if there's a war between Nazi Germany and Europe. He might be involved in that, but spiritually speaking, the ultimate peace was made when Jesus took the sin of the world on the cross. Well, who were the warring factions? All of humanity and God, right? He solves that problem. He solves the, there the problem of all the satanic realm against God will one day be finished when Christ returns, all judgment. Okay, back to the four bridges. Bridge number one, um, two or more other people that are in conflict. Okay, I'm not involved. I'm just trying to be a peacemaker and bring these two. Can we work this out, you guys, and help? Next thing, between God and a person who's drifted away. So, and so Harold, you've been a Christian a long time. I see you at the bar every night now. You're getting drunk again, and you're moving away from God. I love you, brother, but you're out of his will, and you're, I'm showing you scripture and trying to bring him back to God. I can't do it, but the Holy Spirit's doing it through me. Between two or more other people, between God and a person, the person who's drifted away. By the way, when somebody drifts away from God, who moved? God? No. The person moved. Number three, bridge number three. This will be on the final. You might want to write it down. Between unbelievers and God. What I tried to do with my friend Roger Cloud, who died suddenly, and he never believed as far as I know. Speaking to them about the scriptures, answering their questions, witnessing to them, this is what God has done in my life. Powerful witness, your own testimony. Trying to bring warring factions, the unbeliever and God together. Number four, now it gets personal, between yourself and someone with whom there's been conflict or distance. Yes, but I'm right in this situation and he needs to come to me. Forget that. Blessed are the humble, the meek, the you go, make it right. Romans says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, all people. Go the extra mile. Almost out of time. Most of you are asleep anyway. Remember that song, Make Me an Instrument of Peace. Who's the Prince of Peace? Jesus Christ. Made peace between men and God. He made peace between man to man. It's the ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5. The opposite of a peacemaker is a war maker. 
kind of guy you ever meet these people? They're always stirring up the stuff, man. Trying to get, you know what he said about you? I would go tell him off if I were you. That's not a peacemaker, is it? Okay, we're just going to introduce verse 10 because it's a lot going on there. The peacemakers are called children of God because they resemble the ultimate peacemaker, their father, God. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All these are synonyms for they're saved. Did you notice that? Will be comforted, inherit the earth, filled, uh, shown mercy. They will see God. I'm reading all these verses. They'll be, uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, verse 3. Now in verse 10, theirs is the kingdom of heaven again. This is a weird one, isn't it? Blessed, happy, blissful are those who are persecuted. That's not what it says. It says persecuted because of righteousness. That's the caveat. Because some people are persecuted because they're just plain jerks. Has nothing to do with God, Jesus, Bible. They're just jerks. And people persecute them and they deserve it. It's not what he's, he doesn't say blessed are the persecuted. He says blessed are the persecuted when they're persecuted because of righteousness. That's you with your old buddies and they want to all get high or get drunk and you got to want to do that. And go, oh, the Jesus freak doesn't want to. And they're persecuting you, making fun of you. That's when the Bible says um, in the next verse, when people insult you because of Jesus, rejoice. We'll talk about that next week. But on, in verse 10, to be persecuted because of righteousness must mean what? that you really are hungering and thirsting for it. You really are taking a stand for God. You really are pure in heart. And the world that's unsaved, default position, hates God and hates his kids, hates you, right? You saw it, in, you see it in the book of Acts. The church is beginning. These, these guys, Peter, Paul, James, all of them are starting to live Christian lives and they're getting arrested and persecuted, all because of Jesus. They leave, I think it's Acts 5, we'll look it up and talk about it next week. They leave jail and say that, it says that they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer because of his name. Pretty amazing. All right, we're out of time. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. We could just start in the Sermon on the Mount, God, and we've seen most of the Beatitudes. We'll see a few more next week. Lord, how thankful we are that you brought us low. You made us aware of our sin, of how poor we were in spirit, that we needed a Savior. We couldn't do it on our own. We mourned over our sin. You've given us meekness, mercy, grace. We ought to be so grateful we can't even articulate it. May we be so grateful that we seek to honor you by obedience and by sharing everything we've gotten vertically, the grace, the mercy, may we share it horizontally, point it outward at others, and may we bring the glory to your name. Bless these truths, Father, and we pray that you bless each one here and on Zoom, and we pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Very important. And those of you on Zoom, have a great night. God bless. We'll see you next week.